Three Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit arabnews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. Special Correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And good afternoon, everybody. It's June 1, 2022, and I'm your host, Ray Hanania. And uh, we're broadcasting live in Detroit, Washington, D.C. And tomorrow we'll rebroadcast again in Detroit at 7 a.m. And Thursday in Chicago at 12 noon on 1080 a.m. radio, which is a pretty big station that covers all of... Uh, uh, the six-county region around Chicago, so it is a big audience. And we're adding a couple more radio stations in the next uh, few weeks. We have a few more, and uh, we hope to get that off the ground. Today we're going to focus on uh, elections and politics, first on two issues. First, with Michigan political consultants Dennis Denno and Bill Ballinger in segment one, looking at the August 2 primary election contest in several Michigan congressional races, uh, Hueda Araf in the 10th, Andy Levin in the 11th, Rashida Talib in the 12th, and John Conyers III in the 13th. And in segment two, at the bottom of the hour, we'll speak with Illinois Congressman Sean Kasten, who's running in the sixth, the new 6th Illinois House District for re-election uh, in the June 28th Illinois uh, Democratic primary um, against Congresswoman Marie Newman. Uh, Dennis Denno is president uh, in this segment, uh, is president of Denno Research, which he founded in 2004 for over 30 years. He's helped candidates and elected officials shape issues and conduct polling on important races and issues. We've talked many times on the radio show. Dennis, welcome to the program. And Bill Ballinger, he's the founder of Inside Michigan Politics, a state-based bi-weekly subscription newsletter launched in 1987 and published for 27 years. He now publishes the Ballinger Report. Welcome, you guys. And let me just mention to Bill, um, we got to get your video to turn sideways. I think we got you at a 90-degree angle. Or is it a 100? Yeah, there you go. All right. Is that better? Yes. We've straightened you out. We've ne- Have you ever done that with a political consultant, Dennis? We've kind of straightened out a political consultant. I think you are the first person to ever straighten out Bill Ballinger. You think so? I, I know everybody <laughs> wants to straighten me out, but it never works. It never works. First of all, welcome, you guys. And Bill, I know this is the first time on the radio. Thank you for joining us. Um, you know, Mich- Michigan is a hot potato when it comes to politics. And, uh, and of course, for our audience, uh, it has a nice Arab flavor to it. It's like going into a Middle Eastern restaurant. You know, over there. So I don't know uh, when. Let's just throw it in the air and just say, what's the big race coming up? You know, and what are some of the big issues? So I don't know, Dennis. You want to start out, and then we'll go to Bill uh, on some of the issues. I'd like to throw it to Bill. I mean, I think the big race to me is the Michigan governor's race, and that's just so crazy. And I'm curious what Bill Ballinger thinks of all that. 
Well, obviously, the governor's race is huge, but I don't know whether Ray wants to focus on those congressional races down in the Detroit area or talk about the statewide races this year. Well, what, what do you want to do, we Ray? Could, we could talk about the governor's race, you know, a little bit and then go into the congressional okay, well, races. If well, that's the it, big race, let's let's talk about it. Well, when it comes to the governor's race, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the incumbent Democrat, after one term, looking to be reelected is cruising along with no opposition in a primary on August 2nd. Uh, and she's uh, holding the coats of the combatants on the Republican side who are tearing away at each other and making a spectacle of themselves and damaging the Republican brand and making it all that easier for Gretchen Whitmer to win in November against whichever Republican wins the nomination on August 2nd. Is that the Trump factor playing into this or divisions in the Republican Party? I mean, he he didn't do bad, did he, in Michigan, you know, the first time he ran? That is part of it. But, you know, honestly, Ray and Dennis knows this. The most recent development is who the heck is going to be running for the Republicans in the primary on August 2nd. Ten candidates filed to run. That is a record number in Michigan history dating back to when we became a state in 1837. But guess what? Maybe half of them will be thrown off the ballot as unqualified because they totally screwed up their petitions which were rife with fraud and the secretary <laughs> oh, you mean they State, get to scream about voter theft before the election this time instead of after the election that's yeah, exactly yeah this is all happening right now well, and even right now as we talk there is an important deadline today at five o'clock uh is when petitions to get on the ballot in november have to be filed they have to be filed at five o'clock today are, are there any past that are there any uh, big names on the Republican side at all? I mean, because, yeah. you know, between the August 2nd primary, that's August, September, October, you only got three months. I know, and- Ray. Uh, the big deal is the guy who is megabucks, uh, multimillionaire Perry Johnson, has already uh, appealed the decision by the state to not allow him to be on the ballot in the court of appeals and today they rejected his appeal so you know he's going to appeal it to the state supreme court supposedly they will have to make the decision by friday of this week and then there are three other candidates uh who could also be thrown off the ballot because one is already withdrawn and one of those three is james craig the former detroit police chief who has been leading in the polls the entire time. He's not a multi-billionaire, but he and Johnson are huge names. They're the top two uh, contenders in all the polls that have been taken, and they may be thrown off the ballot. Yikes. And so you're going to end up with five people on the ballot on August 2nd who are not well-known at all. And, it's and not a lot of money either to make not themselves Not a lot of known. money, no. So then Gretchen looks like she has a... If things go her way, she's just smooth sailing. It looks that way right now. The the Republicans are doing everything they can to screw up any chance whatsoever they might have had. And then, uh, Dennis, what about now under this big umbrella, the governor's race? You know, there are some interesting, you know, I mean, 
if these guys that are running for governor don't make it back on, it's kind of a dead story, wouldn't you say? It's going to be pretty much taken for granted that Gretchen will win, right? Both yeah, you guys pretty, agree? or? Well, I, I would disagree with that. It's a pretty competitive state. I, I, I would be surprised if Governor Whitmer wins by more than four points. I think there's so many unknowns out there. I mean, inflation, the Trump factor, um, you, know, Trump, you know, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next, what is it, five months? Could um, Trump come in and endorse somebody, put his... You know, kind of not, give him the, you know, knighthood with his sword. He has and, not, uh, not yet, boost, right? And then boost the candidate. He's done it in a couple, a lot of races so far. He could yeah. do that again. Well, Ray, uh, I think if Trump came in on behalf of one candidate, particularly if there are only five on the ballot, and particularly, I guess, more. So if there are 10 on the ballot, we don't know at this point, it will help a Republican, whoever he endorses in a primary. Now, the real question is, if he comes in in a big way between the primary and the general election on behalf of the Republican nominee against Whitmer, I think that probably is going to hurt the Republican. Really? Yeah, I I mean, isn't this this is like a midterm election. So, you know, the Republican vote is going to be higher. They're going to be winning congressional seats. Now, I'm not sure about Michigan, but. Yeah. You know, across the country, they're they're already predicting that the Republicans will take back the House. Um, they may take back the Senate. It may be close as gun control, abortion uh, issues, you know, are kind of fogging everything up. But um, that would you know, I don't know. It sounds like uh, it could help a Republican, especially if Trump were to. Is he the most popular Republican, you think, to influence well, a Republican race? Look, he is the Michigan. most Trump is the most popular among Republicans. But you got to remember, Republicans are probably only about a third of the electorate. And the other third are Democrats. And the middle third are independents and ticket splitters. And the problem for the Republican nominee for governor is uh, not only do Democrats hate Trump, but independents don't like him either. So if uh, Trump is out front and center, uh, you know, thumping the tub for the Republican nominee and the Republicans are all behind him and that's great. And he motivates them to get out and vote fine. But if he's losing the vast majority of the other two thirds of the electorate, I don't think the Republican uh, nominee can overcome that. So Gretchen looks like she has a pretty solid base. Then I know you were saying you didn't. You still think that there's a possibility she could be unseated? Yeah, always, God, Dennis, Dennis is right that Michigan is a close competitive state, particularly in a non-presidential year. And here's something we should just mention. Gretchen Whitmer is not uh, all that popular in Michigan. There are a lot of people who don't like her. Her job rating is either underwater or 50-50, no better than that. Personal approval is a little better. But she is a very vulnerable governor. She's got a lot of things going against her. If she had an articulate, attractive Republican opponent with money, she could be in real trouble. I think Dennis is right about that. It's just that the Republicans right now, as far as I can see, are doing just about everything they can to screw themselves up. Yeah. And then uh, these congressional races are important because they kind of reflect the vote across the state. And for these races, I, I thought were interesting. I mean, maybe they're not. 
you know, like in the 10th district with Hawaii R, if she's running, does she even have a chance of winning? In my opinion, no. Is it because of money? Yeah, I mean, we've just got too many people in the Democratic primary who are more likely to be the nominee in that 10th district. By the way, that 10th congressional district is the only one where the Republicans really have a chance. Uh, They got a probable nominee, John James, who's run for the U.S. Senate twice. They could win that. It's about a 50-50 district. It's a brand new district just created by an independent commission. Never, uh, No incumbent is in it. Um, and 11 represented much of it under the old district lines. But he chose to move next door and uh, run against a fellow incumbent, Haley Stevens, in a Democratic primary. And the 11th, 12th, and 13th district down there, the Democrats are going to win in November. It doesn't make any difference who the Republicans nominate. The Republicans are going to lose. The only real mystery is who is going to win either Levin or Stevens in one district. Uh, Is Rashida Tlaib the incumbent in another district, the 12th? Is she going to survive her primary? I think she will. And then the 13th district is wide open. There's no incumbent. And there are like half a dozen big democratic names in that any one of whom might be able to win well the 13th district has like a richard j daly name john conyers the third um right you know he could i look through all i think there are what nine candidates i look through all of them you know conyers is the one that sticks out uh, maybe like a sore thumb they say because there's a little controversy around him <laughs> i'm not sure how well he's gonna do i tried to get him on the radio show they were going to come on, and I'm not knocking them because uh, we never got a chance to talk. But they, at the last minute, they said, no, 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 we're not going to put them on radio. And I'm thinking, OK, that tells me there's some issues that they have to deal with. I, do I don't gonna... think in and, in and of himself, a John Conyers is no rock star. Right. The only reason he's a factor is, as you pointed out, His name. the name Conyers is a golden name in that era uh, because John Conyers, the father, served almost a record number of years in Congress, along with John Dingell. So everybody knows the name. But, you know, some of the other names are fairly well known. They're just not as well known as John Conyers. It's kind of like uh, Chicago in the last mayoral election. We had this uh, kind of goofy uh, candidate, Lori Lightfoot, who had some credentials with all kinds of problems and controversy. Um, But there were so many candidates running, it only took like... 30% 30% of the vote, you know, 28%, 30% to win the primary. And once you get in that primary, everybody aligns behind the, the leader. Dennis, what do you make of these races in the 10th, the 11th, and 12th? With You know, in Rashida's district in the 12th, I, I read that the Israeli lobby is going to pour a million dollars. That may That sounds like a lot if I were wanting to buy a home or something, but in an election... <laughs> You know, a million isn't really a lot, is it? You'd have to pour in about $5 million if you want to take her out. And I don't think that they have that at, that much. They're spread out all over. I mean, the problem with taking out Rashida Tlaib is, you know, your top-tier candidate is, is Janice Winfrey. You know, full disclosure, I, I did a little work for her congressional campaign. But the problem is for Janice Winfrey, who's the Detroit clerk, is she has two other opponents besides Rashida Tlaib. She has Chanel Jackson 
and the mayor of uh, Lathrop Village, a small town in Oakland County. So if you're anti-Rashida Tlaib, you're going to split that vote three ways. And, excuse me, like you said, a million dollars in a metro Detroit media market doesn't go very far. Yeah, and that, so there are four candidates, within, uh, including Rashida, in that uh, new district. Um, and you're saying Chanel Jackson probably has the – do you think she has the most – name recognition of the challengers besides Rashida? No, I would, I would give it to, I, I, I would Winfrey. be very, I'd be very surprised if uh, Janice Winfrey doesn't come in second and maybe okay. Chanel third. So Janice um, Winfrey was the one you were talking about. That's been in public office and is well known. Yes. Yeah. She's okay. been the, she's been the Detroit clerk for at least three terms. This might be her fourth term. Uh, Bill can correct me if that's, if that, I'm incorrect with that. Um, you know, I, I just don't think she's she 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 has the horses to to uh, unseat Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib, whatever you think of her, I mean, she's tenacious. She can yeah, raise she, one point, she can raise one point five million easily, um, and so I think that's going to be hard hard for someone like Janice to overcome. For for the Arab vote, uh, which is much bigger, obviously in the Detroit region and in her district than it is in uh, Chicago, for example, where I'm at. Um, She's she's a rock star. I mean, she introduced the NECPA resolution, you know, and she doesn't care. There are only nine, you know, co-signers, I guess, that progressives that signed on. But the fact that it was actually presented to Congress in this uh, is what I call. I'm not saying you guys I'm not going to drag into my views, but Congress is Israeli occupied territory, you know. But to get that uh, resolution up there is quite an achievement, even if it's not going to go anyplace. But that's all you can expect, you know, on that issue from her. Right. You know, great ideas that don't don't go anyplace when it comes to, you know, the Middle East. You know, it's something Ray I, I, I've been thinking about. You know, so so Rashida is moving into uh, Dearborn and Dearborn Heights, obviously a large Arab American uh, community. You know, and Rashida is very pro-Palestinian. She is Palestinian herself, and that's great. But there's not a lot of Palestinians right. in Dearborn. Not a lot of Palestinians in Dearborn Heights. Uh, it's a predominantly Shiite Muslim community, uh, which she isn't. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, the community is going to look at her that way. But um, I mean, even the mayor of Dearborn, Dearborn finally has an Arab American mayor and he outraised his opponent. I, I want to say something like eight to one and no knock on the current Dearborn mayor. But I mean, he only got 55 percent of the vote in Dearborn. So it's not like the Arab American community is this united front that's right. going to support, you know, an Arab American candidate no matter what. Right. I, I know that the publisher there at the Arab American News, Osama Sibwani, who's a friend of mine, um, you know, he was, came under fire this week when he made a couple remarks. They really they, they want to go after Rashida as somebody supporting terrorism. But I don't think that that's the issue that's going to, you know, win them, you know, their defeat of Rashida. I think Rashida is in a strong position. And, and out of all these, I think she's guaranteed. And in the 11th district, Andy Levin, he's solid, isn't he? Although you said, uh, Bill, that he's running against uh, another incumbent. They for Did he choose to do that or was he pushed into that? No, he chose to do it. And in fact, a lot of Democrats resent the fact that yeah. he did not stay and run in the 10th district where he would have been an incumbent. And right. then Haley Stevens could have been an incumbent in the 11th and they wouldn't have had to run against each other. And Andy Levin probably would give the Democrats a better chance in the 10th than to have a nominee who's not an incumbent win the nomination and then have to face John James. 
Haley Stevens is a very strong incumbent, in my opinion, and I think she's got a real chance against Andy Levin. I don't think it's any slam dunk he's going to win the nomination. Right. Why would he do that? Why would he go into what was the motivation? Do we know? Apparently, he just uh, considers himself a member of the Oakland County community portion of the district, and he felt more comfortable there. And it's a stronger district for the Democrat who wins the nomination. If he beats Haley Stevens, it's about a 60 percent Democratic district, where if he stayed in the 10th, and, and won the primary, which he would do, he probably might not even have any competition, then he would be facing John James in a 50-50 district. Oh, so John James is probably going to be a strong vote in that, ten, a strong candidate in that 10th district. Probably because he's run twice before. Mm-hmm. He lost both times. He challenged incumbent U.S. Senators Debbie Stabenow and Gary Peters but he came relatively close, particularly against Peters in 2020. Uh, he only lost by about 2%, and he showed an ability to raise a lot of money. So he'll, he'll have the bucks, and whoever the Democrats nominate in that 10th district, they're going to have to raise some money, and the Democrats are really going to have to fight to win that seat. Aside from the Arab voters, the rest of the voters, they, they all everybody focuses on certain issues. You know, for a lot of Arab voters, it's the Middle East issue. Um, but for a lot of non-Arab voters, it's, you know, other issues. What are those big issues that you guys think are driving the election in Michigan? Everything. When I talk to candidates and I mean, I'm hearing inflation, I'm hearing gas, gas prices. I mean, people yeah. are really frustrated, really upset. Um, you know, and then within Democratic Party circles, it's it's frustrating that President Joe Biden's uh, uh, polling numbers are so weak. Now, isn't it normal, though? I mean, in a midterm where a president always kind of drops in popularity because no president can ever really satisfy the voters, the, even the ones that elected them in that first you know, few years, there's always controversy, there's stumbling. Uh, maybe Biden is kind of contributing to it because he's in those upper ages. And, you know, it has a little bit of an impact on him, I think. Um, but uh, uh, gas prices and inflation, I think you're right. Uh, in our next segment with uh, Congressman uh, Sean Kasten from the 6th District uh, incumbent, he's going to be running against another incumbent. They were forced into the district. I don't think it was a choice. Um, They had really that was the only choice for both of them. And uh, I think gas prices and inflation, not the Middle East, are going to be the deciding factors in that race. But we'll talk to him at the bottom of the hour. Any uh, how bad is it in Michigan with gasoline prices? I mean, we're paying five fifty a gallon in Illinois. I think you're worse off than we are. It's bad here, but it's probably around four fifty rather wow. than five fifty. But right. we're headed in your direction. All right. And inflation. It's terrible, Very right? Very bad. Bad. Yeah. And and what other issues? Any at all you think that are gonna uh be a driving force in the upcoming election? Well, there's always speculation that depending on what the U.S. Supreme Court does on the Roe v. Wade abortion issue, that that could become a factor. And in fact, I just saw a poll the other day uh, showing that abortion is like number three on the list behind inflation and the economy and, you know, things like that. Um, It's 
you know, like in 9%, it's not great, but it could become big uh, depending on the way the decision goes. And if it does, it's probably going to help the Democrats a little bit, even though they got so much else going against them. You know, I think it's interesting that, you know, you have this, this subgroup of voters who, who feel elections don't matter. Um, you have the subgroup of, of voters, arguably these white uh, women, suburban women who are independent voters who go both ways. And, you know, when you start talking about taking away abortion access, you start uh, talking about gun issues. Does you know, how does that affect those two subgroups? And I assume in both cases, it would help the Democrats. Yeah. So I that's why I assume that uh, someone leaked that uh, Roe versus Wade uh, preliminary uh, opinion um, to impact that election. And I thought, okay, that's going to help. Democrats going into the midterm. But now that I think about it, you have the other issue, which I think fogs everything, the gun control issue, this massacre of children in Uvalde and uh, all the people saying it's because we can get guns. Um, I'll tell you, I invite all those people to come to Chicago and see how long they last in the streets of Chicago, where they're the fourth toughest gun laws in the country. You know, Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore and uh, one other New York. Those are four toughest, you know, gun laws. And Chicago's the we just had 10 people killed and 50 or 60 people wounded just this past weekend. You know, it, it's horrible. So all of that abortion rush, I think, got, un, you know, it was undermined by this other now gun control issue. I think it kind of weakens the focus. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I think the gun issue is obviously in the last week or two because of these atrocities, uh, you know, in Buffalo and in Uvalde, Texas, uh, guns have surged to the fore. The question is, what way does it cut in the election? I would tend to think overall it would probably help the Democrats. But I will say the argument you just raised, Ray, is what the gun rights people often offer as a reason why we right. shouldn't uh, go whole hog for gun control. And that is some of the jurisdictions that have the toughest gun restrictions in the country suffer the worst gun violence. Right. And why is that? It doesn't make any sense. So th that is a tough issue uh, at, in terms of who it might really help in the election. Yeah. And I, I think that it can't be just, you know, new tighter restrictions on gun uh, purchasing because you have gun laws. Law-abiding people will follow the gun laws. It's the criminals that are not law-abiding that are not going to follow the laws. They're going to get the guns no matter how. They steal them. Um, they're going to find a way to get them, and those are the ones that uh, we have to worry about. Dennis, you kind of get the last few minutes here um, you know, to cap off this. Uh, how important is Michigan, do you think, going into this election? and setting the stage for the presidential election two years from now. Yeah, I'll great. just mention myself, I'll just mention yeah. that the last time the Republicans nationally really had a semi-wave year was 2014, election that most people don't pay much attention to. It was between uh, Obama beating Mitt Romney in 2012 and Trump upsetting Hillary Clinton in 2016. Nationally, it was a big year for the Republicans. But guess what? In Michigan, it really was not that great a year at all. 
Really? Uh, the incumbent governor, Republican, uh, won by only 4%. He ran a terrible campaign. Uh, Gary Peters won an open seat as a Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate by a big margin. And, uh, you know, the Democrats uh, did okay in Michigan. So, honestly, despite everything you're reading and hearing that's going on so well for the Republicans nationally, and this is going to be a big red wave year, the way things are going here in Michigan, it doesn't look to me like it's going to be a big red wave year. I think it's going to be very, very close here. And Michigan may be an outlier and an exception to what happens everywhere else. All right, Dennis. Uh, yeah, really quick. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I basically agree with Bill Ballinger. We're a very competitive state. We have an incumbent Democratic governor who's sharpening her message and has got a lot of money. Um, national folks are not going to want to see her lose. Um, so she's going to get all the support she needs. Um, you know, Michigan's usually a bellwether, too, uh, when it comes to national elections. Um, we're very, very important when it comes to the presidential election. So, so stay tuned. All right. We are going to do that. Um, I want to thank both you guys, uh, Dennis Denno, Bill Ballinger, um, for joining us this uh, afternoon. And uh, I got to have both you guys back. Maybe after the August 2nd uh, elections, let's uh, get, if you don't mind, let's get together and talk about what happened, how close we were and stuff. Dennis is the president of Denno Research. Uh, Bill Ballinger is the publisher of the Ballinger Report. Uh, I know, Dennis, your website is Denno Research, D-E-N-N-O Research.com. Bill, what's your website for listeners who want to follow up on this? Just what you said, theballengerreport.com. That's B- it. B-A-L-L-E-N-G-E-R report. G- the- yeah, G-E-R, but make sure you put T-H-E before it, theballengerreport.com. Dot com. All right, guys. Listen, first of all, thank you for joining me. It was a very interesting race. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh uh, in that election, it looks like there's some interesting elections around the country. But it was great to have both you guys on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ray. All right. You Thanks, guys, Ray. You're Thank welcome. You. You're welcome. I'm Ray Anania. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be talking with uh, Senator or Congressman Sean Caston of the 6th District uh, in Illinois. Let's uh, take our break and uh, we'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Imagine you're on a train track. Somewhere miles away, a train is headed your way. You can't see it yet, but it's coming slowly but surely. If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may be on the wrong track and diabetes could be heading your way. Bit by bit, the danger is getting closer and closer. So should you stay on the track you're on now or move to make a change and reduce your risk? If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may qualify for the National Diabetes Prevention Program in your local community. This one-year program could be the ongoing support you need to put you on the right track. Not only did participants lose weight, they cut their risk of type 2 diabetes in half. Ready to get on board for a healthier future? Learn more about the National Diabetes Prevention Program and what else you can do to manage and prevent diabetes at michigan.gov diabetes. 
A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. Ziad brand quality products from our family to yours Ziad brothers importing offers the finest quality products including brands like sultan Kraft, nestle hook rigo picon donna and many more ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best for more information visit our website at www.ziad.com that's www.ziad.com Ziad quality products from our family to yours. Live performances. Concerts. Music festivals. And hot jazz. Moments like these are made possible by the COVID-19 vaccine. So let's work together to continue to be safe and protect each other. Keep those concerts going. Keep the togetherness going by keeping yourself protected and your COVID-19 vaccines up to date. To find your vaccine and learn more, visit michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. Special Correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. Welcome to uh, segment two. My uh, guest uh, is Congressman Sean Kasten of the former 6th District in Illinois, now running in the newly drawn 6th District, uh, which includes much of Chicago's southwest suburbs uh, and a small part of the city, I I believe. Uh, And he's running against uh, a rival Congresswoman Marie Newman. Uh, Kasson is a scientist 
a clean energy entrepreneur and CEO, and he's dedicated his life to fighting climate change. Kesson serves on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and is vice chair of the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets. You know, all these titles, Congressman, are, they, government bureaucracy always makes them really long. You should see how long it takes for me to introduce a, someone from the State Department. You know, one of the departments is like 40 words sometimes. Well, but he has. We've, we've got to do something to prop up our egos, you know. I mean, the titles <laughs> are the easiest things we can dole out. Well, listen, I, I just want to say thank you for joining us uh, to come on this uh, program and talk to us. I, I know that for my, my world as an Arab American, or at least from the world of Arab Americans, we think Arab issues run everything. Unfortunately, they don't. And I think the 6th District is going to come down to some of the other issues besides the Middle East. But I, I'd love to talk to you about a little bit about the Middle East district uh, issues. And then we can talk about some of the other ones that I think are really going to drive the election results. You know, this district, I think I know the old third district where Marie Newman was in. And by the way, I did invite her to come on to do a segment, uh, not together, but separately. Um, I haven't heard from her yet, and I'm hoping to do that. I invited her twice. The old third district had one of the had one of the largest concentration of Palestinian Americans. Um, and now when you see the redraw, it still seems like it's brought in a lot of area of Orland Park, which has a lot of Arabs. Uh, if you don't mind, let's talk just a little bit about the Middle East uh, for the Arab uh, voters that are in that district there. And of course, for our audience in the Middle East, they're interested in what some of the factors are. Uh, take a look at, uh, first of all, the Israel-Palestine issue. How, what's your perspective on it and how do you look at that? Um, well, I, I think, you know, unlike Jared Kushner, I'm not going to tell you that there's a simple solution to this. <laughs> um, the, I've, I've traveled to the region twice since getting elected, the first time primarily um, on the Israeli side, the second time primarily through the West Bank and going into Hebron and Ramallah and Bethlehem. And, you know, I'm, I'm struck by a couple things. Number one is that there is so much pressure in our U.S. system to be responsive to U.S. citizens who are advocates for the region. And it is, I think it is so dangerous to only listen to those groups if you haven't spoken to folks on the ground. Um, you know, every time I go there, we get in these conversations where, you know, when I've met with everyone from Prime Minister Shataya to Mahmoud Abbas to um, Benjamin Netanyahu and, and yeah, um Yair Lapid this last time, everybody will tell Americans who are there that the system is very brittle. If you push us too hard, you'll see the rise of the, the right on the Israeli side. If you push us too hard, you'll see the rise of Hamas on the, on the Palestinian side. And there's this tremendous pressure that says, please don't violate the status quo. And yet we all know that the status quo is untenable. Um, I mean, I, I think the surest way to compromise the security of everyone in the region is to continue the status quo where you have a group of people with no property rights and increasingly little hope. Um, and yet when we're there, you know, we find ourselves saying, okay, um, there have been times in our history when the U.S. put pressure on the Israeli government to make sure that everybody in East Jerusalem should vote, could vote. Should we do that in this moment? And we hear voices on the Palestinian side, well, I, I don't know, because if you push that, you know, you might see, you, you might see Hamas. Then we said, well, you know, we have we have Palestinian communities who need representation. They don't have an embassy anymore. 
um, should we push to create that embassy? That seems like a good thing that Congress should do. We're not taking sides. We're just saying we need to make sure that people, um, you know, we, we talked to a guy who runs a, the Hope Flower School that teaches nonviolence in Bethlehem. He doesn't have anyone to reach out to right now. So we raise that issue and then we hear, well, be careful pushing that because as you've seen, you know, the Knesset is very narrowly divided right now. And if you push too hard, that might create the rise of the, you know, the, the return of the, the Israeli political. And are you, you're talking about the consulate that they're talking about for Palestinian affairs in Jerusalem that they want to reopen? Yeah, which, which, was, which was cut down by the Trump administration. Right. So now you've got this circumstance. So you're, you're, are you in support of that, reopening that? So uh, I'm, that- I'm completely in support of that. But the challenge is, is how do we do that in a way that is responsive to the circumstances on the ground there? Right. It doesn't pay attention. I mean, I mean, we had a situation when we were there where we had gone in um, the last time I was there, which was last February, I think. We'd gone in and met with um, with with several Palestinians who, you know, up they've got a farm up on the hill above their farm. There's essentially an outpost with armed settlers, right. armed settlers, you know, who are who are you know regularly coming down shooting their livestock, and we're sitting there saying. We're members of Congress. Why don't we just walk up? And they were saying, no, 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 they're not going to like you are going to get shot if you do that. Do not walk up there, which is weird. Normally, as members of Congress can go anywhere. We then come back and we met with with Tom Nides, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, who's a lovely guy. And we start telling him about this. And it was clear that he he was not aware of those realities on the ground, because as the as the ambassador to Israel, he he cannot travel into that region except in a supervised fashion. And so we we need whatever we do with information is a separate question, but we need to have information. We have this blind spot in U.S. foreign policy right now. Um, and, and, so number one, we need to be on the ground. The, the second thing that I'd say, which is, I, I find that if you look at sort of the, you know, 100 years of global history, we had, you know, the rise of the nation state. And the West Bank and Gaza are arguably the only two places in the world that went backwards. You know, and, and by backwards, I mean, we had borders. Once, you know, once we had nation states and all the land was claimed by nations, you then had some understanding of what the rule of law was between those borders. And after the Six-Day War, you had, you know, well, you know, several years after the Six-Day War, you had Egypt that said, we like this land for peace idea. We'll take We'll take the Sinai back, but we don't really want the people in Gaza, right? And then you had, and then you had Jordan saying, "Well, I don't really want the people um, on the other side of the Jordan River." And so you're left with these two zones where we don't have we don't have any international rule of law for what applies in those areas, and you know we we talk about them as nation states, but they don't exist as nation states. Um, and and I think it behooves all of the surrounding countries in the region. They have some role in doing that and in, in getting some resolution. I don't I don't know what it is. Yeah, and, but I think and, the framing that says these are these are two coherent countries with a border dispute misses the point that it's it, it's not a coherent country. It's a it's a it's a set of people who were abandoned. We're in year seventy four of a conflict that's been raging since nineteen forty eight. And it's hard to tell people on both sides that are emotional um, that uh, it's not going to be easily solved. So I think they, you know, like in in the Arab community in this new district, and I don't know if you had many contacts in your old district 
which was pretty much more Western suburbs, I believe, the old sixth district. Mm -hmm. Now you have a big segment of Palestinian Americans. And, you know, to them, the issue is Palestine or nothing. I I think Mm -hmm. it's a mistake. And uh, I think we got to work with everybody. Um, You came to the Arab American Democratic Club and spoke there, which I thought was very gracious. We had Marie Newman uh, come there. I think some of the Arabs prefer her, her because she's been outspoken about some of these issues but i think for you it's kind of new isn't it or did, do you have have you had a bigger population well, in, well in, there's a there's district. a fairly sizable muslim population in the current sixth district um right i don't and i don't obviously there's plenty of arabs who are not muslims um, right i'd say and, about 75 percent of muslims are non-arab yeah so yeah. it's kind of like a new uh dynamic i think in in this election for you yeah the i mean look i i think there's a um part of the job of being a member of Congress, if you're, is you got to empathize with a whole lot of people who have different backgrounds than you. And if you're not thinking about who's not in the room, you're not doing the job. And and a part of that is not, not assuming that any block of voters has only one issue. Right. Um, I think from a, I think, I think from a regional perspective over there, um, I, I think we can simultaneously acknowledge that sort of the evolution of, of the you know the Palestinian cause with the rise of pan Arabism and how much that sort of evolved out of Palestinian refugee camps right after you know in the in the fifties and sixties, but then simultaneously how the the feeling on the ground in Israel I think the I think there used to be a sense in Israel that there was no path to regional peace without a resolution of the Palestinian issue, and with the passage of the Abraham Accords, with the, you know, with the increasing concern about a nuclear Iran, the the feeling that I get on the street when I talk to Israelis over there is that they've almost inverted that, that until we have regional peace, we don't need to worry about the Palestinian issue. Right. And, and I, I don't know how to solve that. I, I, I feel better about our opportunity to solve that when we have more centrist, more moderate Israeli governments. Right. Of course, the Israeli government has been very, you know, very brittle now for four or five years. Um, I, I, I was going to say that uh, um, the uh, there, there have been individual issues that have come up. And I know that it's not easy because the Israelis are very well organized. The Arabs are not. The Israelis understand marketing, communications. They can come in with press releases, media and just wreak havoc in any district. And I'm not saying they're doing that in our, in this new district. Um, but the Palestinians, on the other hand, it seems to be driven by emotion. I mean, I'm, I'm Palestinian, uh, Christian, and it, it does have a lot to do with emotion. So sometimes it gets very hard to address the real issues. Um, yeah. And that's the, what I was saying about, like, we need, I think, to address these issues, we have to understand how it affects the politics on the ground there. Right. Because it's easy to get caught up in, well, somebody came in my office yesterday, someone else came in my office Thursday, they felt really strongly about this. And I think I can win an election if I focus on this issue. And if, if that whole conversation happens in a bubble, where you never go over and say, okay, you know, what is what is the reality in the old city? You know, what is the, you know, if you've, if you've never stood on Mount Olive and sat there and said, okay, you know, I look that way, I see, uh, you know, I see Bethlehem, yeah. I look this way, I see an area that's been, you know, had, had has had some form of rather remarkable cohabitation for several thousand years um and and understanding those dynamics of how i mean when we were last over there in february we were we were sitting there and, got, and our, our host said 
every time something flares up, it happens right over there at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And, and mark my words, you can see the tension that's going on right now. You can see, you know, what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah. There's going to be there's going to be a flashpoint at this point when we have Passover and Ramadan and uh, all, all coinciding. And he was right. And um, and and you obviously, I think, have touched a, a, a chord with uh, at least I, I saw that J Street endorsed you. I know they endorsed both of you previously when you're running separate. But when the two of you came together, they endorsed you and J Street is the moderate. Uh, I consider them the moderate uh, Jewish voices. You know, my wife is Jewish. I'm Palestinian Christian. My uh, cousins are the pastors of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. So anything that happens there just strikes home really quick. But let me check off a couple boxes. A two-state solution you support it, or do you think it's uh, no longer feasible? Have you thought about um, I, I absolutely support it, and I wish I could tell you that I saw a path to getting it done. I don't I don't know how you have a, a a democratic Jewish Israel that doesn't have two states with coherent borders. I will also share with you that the I have yet to meet an Israeli leader who is committed to the idea that they don't have complete control of security, which is one and a half states, and and I've yet to meet a you know a leader in in the Palestinian Authority who who doesn't have a business card that shows a map that runs from the Jordan to the sea. And is it possible to address an issue like, um, you know, the killing of uh, Shireen Abu Akla? Uh, she's a Christian American, an American citizen uh, who was killed. Is it possible to address that without getting into all the politics? I mean, it, it's a crime. She's an American citizen. That definitely should be investigated. Correct. I I I would hope so. Um, I, you know, I think as you as you, you know keenly um, surmised. There are a lot of there are a lot of pressures within our domestic politics, but I think we should be able to manage. I mean, I'm I, I've always been partial to that beautiful line of Frederick Douglass's when he said that the best friend of a nation is he who 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 tell, you know acknowledges her faults um, rather than cloak himself in the specious garb of patriotism. And you know, he was of course talking about America, but I think I think in the same way for the United States to be a good friend of Israel as we are, we also have to be willing to say you know. As your friend, you're not perfect. Can you support? I was just going to elaborate on that and say, can you say to the Israelis, um, I support your security, but uh, there's certain lines that you shouldn't push that, as you yeah. say, they're not perfect. I mean, don't shoot so many people. They they kill, I think, 10 times more Palestinians than, than Palestinians kill Israelis. Uh, it's bad on both sides. But, you know, when you see that level, it makes you wonder if uh um, you know, maybe there's something the one stronger side is taking advantage of the situation more than the other side, which is more emotional. Well, uh, we, we have, you know, for uh, as long as I'm aware, our all of our State Department funding has been very explicitly stated that said anything that's done must be consistent with achieving a two state solution. Is that always enforced? Is it even possible to enforce? I mean, how do you you know, how do you differentiate between civilian materials and, and military materials? I, I don't know that we do that perfectly, but I do think it's important that we always we always signal that, that there are our foreign aid is a function of our foreign policy um, and, and it needs to have that level. Now, I, I want to shift away to some of these other issues, and I'm sorry, the Middle East is so important. You know, mainly we're Arab audience, Arab radio, so we want to talk. And I think it was very gracious of you. Uh, to come on the radio, because a lot of members of Congress won't come on and talk about the Middle East. They think it's a no win situation, that there's 
you know, no matter what the middle ground is, emotions are going to kill you. But um, just talking about uh, the issue of uh, the president, President Biden, for example, I mean, there's this big concern that the Democrats are going to lose, you know, midterm elections traditionally go to the opposite party, you know, when a president, you know, of the uh, president who holds the White House. Do you, are you fearful that that's where we're headed in this election coming up this year? Well, I am I am hugely concerned if we lose control of the House because the you know, I was there on January 6th and watched the majority of my Republican colleagues vote vote to destroy our democracy. And the and, and it it deeply troubles me that it has become so partisan to suggest that we continue to preserve our democracy. So that scares me. Having said that, I am more optimistic than a lot of the polling would be. And my optimism comes from the fact that I came in in 2018, biggest freshman class since Watergate, flipped 40 seats-ish. Um, I don't remember the exact number. And, you know, for those of us who came in in that class, you know, myself, Alyssa Slotkin, Lauren Underwood, Abby Spanberger, Tom Malinowski, Andy Kim, Jason Crow, Katie Porter, you know, go on and on down the line. Every one of those people, we won because not just because we got Democrats to vote for us, but because we convinced Republicans that we actually have more in common than divides us. And number one, I think that's what we need as a country. But number two, we, we had some polling recently that said every Every sitting member of Congress that is a that is a frontliner, meaning we're roughly speaking in districts that are that are D plus five or worse, and then in the new six, there's a D plus five seat. So this isn't like the old like Dan Lipinski wins by forty points. This right. is generic Democrat would win here by five points. That district's going to stay solid Democrat no matter what. No, no, it's not. This is a this is much more like the current six. That you know the, the this the seat went from a D plus two to a D plus four or five. It still is a very purple seat, but for those of us in those seats, we are out polling the president by 14 points. Really, and and that's that's not surprising because there is the national democratic message, which is the message we use when we are talking to Democrats, and then there's the way that those of us who flipped seats got elected, and you know we 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 flipped these seats because we told a bigger story that's more inclusive of all the population, and I think as long as you know, as long as you remember, Joe Biden is not on the ballot. Um, right. Um, so you if know, you can go directly to voters with those issues, what what's the most important issue, do you think, when you talk? Because you did flip the old 6th district. You took it from a Republican and yeah. made it a Democratic district. What's the big issue you think is going to win this election? Well, let me talk first. And so in 18, Peter Roskam had won by 18 points, and I won by seven on the same ballot that J.B. Pritzker lost by five. And my, my theory of the case at that time, which is still true, is that people will respect you if you disagree as long as you're present, right? You know, I've, I've done, I did a town hall on inflation this week. It was like, right. like flypaper for angry Republicans. But I thought it was important for us to say, you've got views, let's be out there and do it. Um, I did town halls, then town halls on impeachment. I did a town hall after the, the, uh, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. You know, th- these are issues where I think it's imp- and not like a topic at a town hall, an entire right. town hall dedicated to that. And what I've found is that is that folks, I think it's very rare that you lose an election because people disagree with you on a single issue, but they but they want to know that they 
that they respect that in a hard in a hard point you're going to take all the facts in and you're going to respect them and, and be out there for it and i think that matters um and to, to do that for everybody not just your party as far as this election um <laughs> if you asked me this question three weeks ago I'd, I'd say it would be about inflation and uh and crime if you asked me this week you know you know, Roe versus Wade is now back in it. Gun crime is still there, except that it was gun crime two weeks ago based about, you know, replacement theory. And now it's gun crime of what the heck just happened in Texas. And why did the Uvalde police officers not stand up? And why do we have so many guns in our society? Um, unfortunately, the news cycle keeps moving. But I think I think those issues will be consistently there. Is that that's what voters are looking for? You think those answers? to Yeah. If if, if you ask people what they're anxious about, those are the big things they're anxious about. Um, At the same time, I think what I've found is that if you ask people, are you anxious about the direction of the country? You get an overwhelming yes. If you ask people, uh, are you are you better off now than you were two years ago? You also get an overwhelming yes. And I and I think just giving a point to remind people that you remember two years ago when you know, three years ago, when you woke up in the morning and had to turn on your phone to see if the president had blown up the world or banned somebody else from coming to our country or said that there were fine people on both sides or threatened to break up NATO or, you know, suggested, you know, not arming Ukraine against Russia or the economy was in free fall or COVID was a hoax. Like we're a lot better off than we were a couple of years ago. And you can, you can see it in people's outlooks. And I think, reminding people that we we got to this point because of all the hard work we did over the last couple of years and you know when you you may not always agree with the adults but it's nice having the adults in charge i think part of your message was really important just being there being available talking to people even if you don't agree with them you got to be there and let them see that because i agree with you it's not one issue i've covered politics 45 years it's it it sounds like it's one issue but it's not really one issue it's a lot of issues and are you responsive? And I, and I think you've, uh, you know, we've only just recently met, but I, I feel you've been very responsive and I appreciate the fact that uh, you're joining us. We, we only have like 90 seconds left. <laughs> and I know that I really wanted to get into climate change because I know that that's one of your big areas. Is it, is there a way to change it? in you know, in 60 seconds or less, can we reverse climate change or is it so impossible because uh, it's not just the U.S. It's the whole world we got to deal with. Well, the single biggest opportunity we have with climate change is that you can't build clean energy without also building cheap energy. And so the more we deploy these solutions, the more it feeds on itself. If, you're, if your neighbor has solar panels and doesn't pay for electricity anymore, it kind of tempts you into doing the same thing, right? And so I think if we embrace that deployment, the challenge we have is that converting to clean energy also means a massive wealth transfer from the energy producing parts of the country to the energy consuming parts of the country. And the political challenge and the thing that we will not get through this until we address the politics is how do we make sure that all the wealth we're going to create is is evenly spread and people don't feel left behind in this transition. Uh, we've been working to do that. We've got a lot of provisions in the climate rules that we're doing. Um, but but folks in those regions, you know, in West Virginia and Louisiana, they are nervous about whether we're going to look out for them because historically the government hasn't. All right, Congressman, I got to say thank you. It was a real pleasure to have you on. I'm Ray Anania, our guest, Sean Casson, the Congressman 
from the 6th District, our guest this uh, afternoon. I appreciate it, Congressman. It's very generous for you to come on and talk issues with us. You have a great week. Thank you for having me, Ray. Always a pleasure. All right. We'll talk again. Thank you. And I hope you guys join us next week here at the Ray Hanania Show at Arab News. Uh, Go to Facebook.com slash Arab News to watch the streaming podcast of this show. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you next week when we have the brother of Shireen Abdul-Akal joining us to talk about his sister. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.